Well, in its heyday, the uh, Roman Empire, it was constantly expanding. Generals and armies, officials of all sorts, would venture beyond the frontiers of the empire to conquer various foreign nations and kings. Now, this would happen, and it made the Roman Empire probably the most dominant empire in world history. But the problem is, most ordinary Romans didn't see such victories. They didn't witness such military triumphs firsthand. And so over the years, Roman officials, they, they began to display such victories through a series of public processions and spectacles. Often what would happen, and you can find accounts in various Greco-Roman texts, what would happen is the victor, so a Roman general, would position himself outside of the city, the city being Rome, and if the victim, the, the defeated foreign king or general was present, the victim would be there too. And so what would happen is the victor would, would parade into the city, and if the victim was present, he'd be paraded into the city, and droves of people would leave the city of Rome and would, would meet the incoming victor or victim outside the city. There's a text in Josephus, the Jewish historian, that talks about Vespasian entering the city of Rome, and it says that it was the only time when the city of Rome was empty. Everybody came out of the city, and, and what they would do is they would cut branches from the fields, they would take off their cloaks and garments and, and throw it on the road in front of Vespasian or whoever the general was, and they would sing, and it would be this grand display, this public spectacle of triumph or victory. Now, in all of these accounts, the, the victor and or the victim would proceed through these crowds, and upon entering the city of Rome, the first place they'd go was the temple of Jupiter. And the victor would offer sacrifice to the gods, and the victim, friends, would then be executed near the temple as a sacrifice to the gods. Now, another way to display Roman power and triumph was through a practice that's called angareia, or requisition. Now, about a month ago, I preached on Matthew 5, 41, where it says, if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. I explained how this is not just a common favor, but this invokes the common practice of Roman soldiers, officials, and prefects using their legal right to requisition or, or take a wagon, a laborer, or a pack animal for use while on an official imperial business. Now, this right, as you could imagine, was, was quickly abused, and these officials would take advantage of people. And so if you look throughout the historical record, you'll see scores of decrees regulating the practice. So in the end, soldiers and officials, while on duty, had the legal right to requisition people, animals, or carts, but they had to present a diploma, a kind of permit 
issued by the prefect or the emperor to do so. Now, with all of that in mind, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Mark 11 in the ESV, and I know Mike didn't have you do it last week, but as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Now, when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. You may be seated. Now, as I'm sure you noticed, there are a number of details which combine here to make this passage eerily similar to common displays of Roman triumph. Roman power. The Gospel of Mark has even been identified as the Gospel to the Romans. The Gospel of Matthew seems written to a Jewish audience, Luke to a Gentile one. Mark seems to be self-consciously written to a Roman audience. It seems that the author of Mark's Gospel is up to something here. The question for us, I think, is what is that something? In other words, in describing Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in terms that are strikingly similar to displays of Roman triumph, which his auditors, his readers would have known, how exactly does Mark want us to think of Jesus here? That, of course, is the question I'll spend the majority of this message answering, but To anticipate some of my conclusions, I think like displays of Roman triumph, Jesus' triumphal entry here, 1,993 years ago, his entry into Jerusalem here was a kind of staged 
display of his victory and authority. Requisitioning an animal without a diploma, saying the Lord, not Jesus, the God of Israel, not the owner of the animal, but the Lord, a common title of Caesar, the Lord has need of it. Proceeding through droves of people who are throwing garments and and palm branches. All of these details, including his entry into the temple and then leaving the city, make this a dramatic performance of power and triumph. The, The triumphal entry displays Christ's cosmic victory, which us citizens of earth do not see firsthand. It it displays in vivid terms, I think, Christ's triumph over capital S, sin, capital D, death, and capital E, evil. And it demonstrates his expansion and renewal of the entire world much more than just the Roman Empire. As Jesus' entry was a kind of stage display of realities we can't see, I think our lives as followers of Jesus are to be staged in a way. They're to be visible, dramatic displays of the realities that Christ has won. Now today, as you know, is Palm Sunday. It is the the day which begins Holy Week in the Christian calendar. And on this day, many years ago, Jesus entered not Rome, but Jerusalem. And he enters as victor, yes, but also as soon-to-be victim. So my plan this morning is to walk through this Key text, verse by verse, paying careful attention, though, uh, to its similarities with displays of Roman triumph, before closing with some words of application for us today, on this day. So that is my plan, um, but before we really get into it, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for coming Thank you for entering our world as a humble infant, for entering Jerusalem humble and riding on a donkey. And thank you for entering our hearts, our church, our world today, humbly yet triumphantly, Lord. Prepare our hearts for you, please, this morning. Help us to welcome you with shouts of joy. But I do pray, Lord, that you would pierce our hearts with the realities of Holy Week, the triumph and the the loss, Lord. Help us to experience this week as you did. Please make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's begin at verse 1 in chapter 11. And what I want to do is start by looking at the frame of the passage and comparing it to those accounts of Roman triumph or victory. 
So as I said before, a common trope in these accounts is for the victor and victim to position themselves outside the city intentionally and then to make their way into the city in a grand sort of entrance. In Mark 11, verse 1, it says, They drew near, they being Jesus and his disciples, they drew near to Jerusalem, but they didn't go into the city. They go to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So first we get this geographical note that positions Jesus and the disciples outside the city of Jerusalem. Now jump now to verse 8. This is after Jesus requisitions the colt, which I'll talk about in a moment. And he mounts this animal that had never been ridden, never been broken, saddled, or trained. And in verse 8 it says that many... And these are Jews who had come to Jerusalem for Passover. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. You guys are holding some of those. And so this parallels almost exactly the stories you read about Roman victors and people coming out of the city and spreading their garments and their branches, cut branches in front of them. Now, lastly, let's look at verse 11. This, I think, is the most striking detail of Mark's account. It says that, that after proceeding through these masses, he enters Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and immediately he goes into the temple, which for, for all of these Roman readers who are familiar with such stories, this would have stood out. He goes into the temple. Not, mind you, the temple of Jupiter, but the temple of Yahweh the God of Israel. And it says that when he looked around at, at everything that was going on, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He leaves the city. Friends, this tells us that, that this dramatic, vivid spectacle, this entrance into Jerusalem, was not actually intended to get him into the city. Right after he gets into Jerusalem, he leaves. I think this is meant to be striking and to tell us that, that this whole display is, is meant for another purpose. It's meant to function in, in a special way. And I think it is meant to display for us realities that are often unseen. Now, in 2016... I had been living in the great American city of Chicago uh, for a, almost four years at that point. And I took a job on Addison Street, a part-time job at the Salvation Army, and Addison Street is where Wrigley Field is located, where the Cubs play. That's why our dog is named Wrigley. Um, the Chicago Cubs hadn't won the World Series for 108 years. I think it was the longest drought in sports history or something like that, 1908. And I'm getting on the subway to get to work, and I'm seeing Cubs fans, and I'd gone to a lot of Cubs games because they were cheap, they were not a good team. And so I'm cramming into the subway like it's sardines, and I'm noticing the Cubs are doing pretty well. Playoffs come in October, and they advance, and they advance, and it's getting harder for me to get to work. And the Cubs made it to the World Series, and guys, they won. 
They won the World Series 2016. So I was not at the game at which they won the whole World Series. I wasn't there. But I did have the privilege of being at the parade a couple days after. Now, something like 7 million people came to Chicago for the Cubs parade. Nobody went to work. Everyone was at this parade. But friends, only a very small proportion of the people at the parade saw them win the World Series. I was on the third story of a building, apartment building of my boss, the Salvation Army, watching the whole thing. They weren't playing baseball. They were laughing. They were singing. People were throwing stuff in front of them. They're having a great time. And for all of us who were not at the game, we experienced the victory of the Cubs, the visible spectacle that was that parade. Another way to get at this is I want you to imagine your favorite U.S. president. I imagine some of you will have better candidates than, uh, than me. Um, imagine your favorite, the best leader in your lifetime, President of the United States. Now, I want you to think of their inauguration ceremony. You probably listened to it or watched it or somehow witnessed it, but you didn't witness the, the many small achievements, victories that put that person in that position. You probably didn't witness all of the promotions, all of the successes that, that got them into that office. But if you saw the inauguration and all the elements that go with it, you saw a performance of authority. And that probably created feelings and sensations as though you had seen the victories firsthand. Friends, I think that's exactly what's going on here in Mark 11. Jesus is, is vividly dramatizing his victory over the powers of sin and death, which really only he and those powers had seen. Now we get this interesting story about the cult. Let's look at verse 2. They're outside the city, and Jesus commands a few of his disciples to, to go into this village that's in front of them and to, to requisition, to, to take this cult. Now, a cult is an uncastrated young male horse, donkey, mule, could be either of those. It's likely here that it's a donkey. He says you'll find a colt tied, a young animal, on which no one has ever sat. And for all of you who have trained horses, ridden horses, just keep that in mind. No one has ever broken this animal, trained this animal, sat on this animal. Say, the, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, untying the colt, say, the Lord has need of it. Now, he doesn't say the owner of the animal has need of it. He doesn't say Jesus has need of it. He says the Lord, Kyrios, has need of it. Now, in actual requisition formulas that you can see from antiquity, you see language that's almost exactly like this. Where an official would have a permit that would allow them to requisition an animal 
And they might ask, why? What gives you the right? The Lord. Caesar has need of it. Now, I don't think Jesus is thinking of Caesar here. But he purposely uses ambiguous language, which I think connects the Lord in the mind of the Roman citizens with the Lord that we know, the God of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they take the colt and they say exactly what Jesus told them to say. And they threw their cloaks on it, its very first saddle. They brought it to Jesus and he sat on it. I want you to picture that president that I had you think of. Imagine that president is in town for a speaking engagement, an event, in Freeport or wherever you live, in town. And imagine that, you know, their rental car, which they get, it breaks down. And it turns out they need a vehicle for a few hours. So you look out your window and you see these guys in suits and sunglasses, probably not what they actually look like, secret service officers coming to your front door. And you hear a knock, knock, knock. They open the door. This guy says, give me your keys. The president needs your car for a few hours. How would you react to that? Would you resist? How would you feel in the presence of such authority? This whole performance powerfully underscores Jesus' cosmic authority. His authority over Roman generals and prefects, over the emperor himself. Now lastly, we've got to look at verses 9 and 10. So Jesus is sitting on this animal, somehow, somehow riding, successfully riding this colt, this young colt that had never been broken, that had never been trained. The creator of this colt is the only person who can do that. So he's riding the colt, and we got crowds in front, those who went before, and crowds behind, those who followed, shouting, Hoshiana. It's a quote from Psalm 118.25, save, save us, we pray. Hosanna, save us, we pray. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now these words, like I said, are from Psalm 118, which along with several other psalms from Psalm 113 to 118, are part of what's known as the Hillel Psalms. Now these are a group of psalms, songs really, that ancient Israelites and Second Temple Jews sung at various festivals throughout the year. Now one of those festivals was, of course, the festival of Passover, and that is what time it is in the gospel at this point, Passover. Passover, as you probably know, was a festival commemorating the 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 political liberation of Israel from Egyptian oppression, captivity. It commemorates uh, Moses, God using Moses to free Israel from Egypt and send them toward the promised land. So to hail Jesus in this way 
through song, which carries with it deep, visceral memories and feelings, would have connected Jesus to the story of Exodus. Now, we all have these songs that connect with various seasons of the year or seasons of our lives. I know you have these. If you were to hear, we wish you a Merry Christmas in July, you would have all the feelings of Christmas, all the anxieties of preparing Christmas dinner in July. I can think of bands that I listened to during my teenage years, and if I were to hear a song by that band today, it would conjure the feelings and anxieties about that season. Now, for these Jews to hear the Hillel Psalms, connected not with Christmas, but with Exodus, and to see the palm branches, the the, the donkey, the garments strewn on the road, and to see Jesus... It would have conjured some very specific and powerful feelings and I think hopes for a deliverer like Moses. To step back, to zoom out at this point, I think like displays of Roman triumph, Jesus' triumphal entry was and is a staged display of victory. Onlookers don't actually see Jesus' heavenly defeat of the powers of sin, death, and evil. So the triumphal entry displays for us his victory in vivid and memorable terms. Now, without sounding disingenuous or superficial, pretentious, any of that, I do want to suggest that like Jesus' entry, our lives today are to be staged displays, a parade, a procession like the Cubs in 2016, vivid spectacles showing the world the realities won by Jesus Christ. Onlookers do not see the cosmic victory of Jesus. They don't see the heavenly authority he wields. They don't see the history-bending influence of his spirit on the world. Our life today is to be what the triumphal entry was back then. A staged, dramatic display of the heavenly victories of Jesus Christ. But let me add here, friends, that just as the victor was commonly paraded into the city, so were victims. The Romans wanted to make the victims look as powerful and and grand as possible, so the victory seemed all the more impressive. Jesus is entering Jerusalem as both victor and victim. He is being sacrificed outside the temple for us. So just as our lives are to display the the victory of Christ, they often do that through 
our victimhood. Paul says we die every day. We carry the the, the death of Jesus in our bodies every day. And through our weakness, we proclaim his strength. I really think then that in a way, our life is a staged life. And so as we go about our lives this week, Holy Week, as we go about the various practices and services and activities that are part of our Christian life, I want us to think of this scene, this this dramatic performance of Christ's authority, this strategic, intentional display, and I want you to imagine every little thing you do as contributing to this performance, this reenactment, this witness to realities the world cannot see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us, showing us your victory in the most unexpected way imaginable. The Lion of Judah is the slaughtered lamb of Passover. How? This week, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and souls up to possibilities, realities we would have never considered before. Stretch us, Lord, bend us, soften us this week as we welcome you home. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Palm Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, which means it falls on Communion Sunday. And as we the uh, servers can come forward, by the way. Um, as we think about these parallels with the Roman Empire, and we think about these generals offering sacrifice to the gods, what is so striking to me is that instead of us feeding the gods, what Jesus does at the Last Supper is... The God, God, feeds us with his very own body. I want you to think about that this morning. Think about the fact that the Son of God becomes a sacrifice, not to feed Jupiter or Apollo, but but to feed us with the bread of life. And so let's reflect on that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together. But let me open with a word of prayer. Please, Lord Jesus, make this a powerful experience of your presence with us and your death for us. I pray, Lord, that as we consume the bread that is your body, the wine that is your blood, that we would feel it coursing through us, uniting us together and empowering us to live resurrected new lives this week and beyond, Lord. We love you and and thank you for the opportunity to remember together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.